We're working our way through the letters of Ephesians. <clears throat> Today we're looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, and um, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds and our very imaginations of what it looks like to live out the calling that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> Well, if I haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Anthony. It's great to be back with you. I was on vacation the last few Sundays. We were in the cool land of Arizona, um, and it was 175 degrees, but it was a dry heat. It was a dry heat, which I will gladly take over Austin's wet blanket that tries to suffocate you for like 13 out of the 12 months of the year. Um, but my family and I had a great break. I miss you guys. It's good to be back. Um, and... We're working our way through Ephesians, and writing sermons, it's, for me, it's very much, um, it's like a dance with the Holy Spirit. For me, it's an art form. It's a give, it's a take, it's a wrestling that, um, when I know I'm preaching the text, it's always, I'm kind of meditating on it for weeks ahead of time, and coming home, um, I got home last, uh, Sunday, Monday was my first day back, and... I just was like wrestling with this text. I had done study before I went on vacation. And I was like, Lord, is this just like vacation brain? Like this is, feels like the hardest sermon I've ever written. And, um, and they say your sermon's not done until you preach it. And I preach it three times on Sunday. And I, I felt good coming into Like I practiced my sermon. I felt comfortable. But after the 745 service, you didn't know that. We have a 745 a.m. service. 7.45. It's really early. And by the end of that sermon, I went, oh, that was the sermon I've been trying to write all week. And I tell you that to kind of give you an inside view of, of where we're going this morning. Uh, but to understand where we're going, we have to understand where we came from. Uh, like I said, we're walking through the letter of Ephesians. And the first three chapters of Ephesians is Paul laying this beautiful theology of what, what we've received freely through the work of Christ. That Christ, um, specifically for the people in Ephesus, that God reconciled them to himself through Christ. And to the Ephesians, that was a big deal because they were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They weren't fearers of Yahweh. They weren't followers of the one true God. And really, in that religious system, there was no way for them to be part of that chosen people. But Paul's laying this out, saying, no, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he has reconciled all people to himself. And in Paul's time, that would have been mind-blowing. It was crossing social and ethnic and race lines. And Pastor Danner last week gave a wonderful sermon. It's better even online because you can listen at 2.5 speed. Not that fast, like 1.5 and get it done in three hours instead of the four hours he preached. And uh, he gave a wonderful sermon on uh, just sharing how really at the heart of any reconciliation between any groups of people, it has to be the gospel. It has to be the gospel. And that was the good news for the Ephesians. And then uh, chapter 4, the book starts to take a turn. 
of Paul's reminded them for three chapters of who you are. This is who you are in Christ. You've done nothing to earn it. You're loved by God. God has made a new people for himself in Christ. He's made a new humanity, if you will, by joining Jew and Gentile in himself. And now he, he shifts in chapter four. This is what it looks like to actually live this out. And he's writing to the, to the Ephesians, and he's saying, this is what it looks like. And that's why he starts with, I, therefore, a prisoner for Paul, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. We'll get there. He's not writing to individuals. He's not writing to one person. He's writing to the churches in Ephesus, a group of people who were not following Jesus, but now they are, who were not part of the family of God, but now they are part of the family of God. Uh, a man who discipled me for years when I lived in Dallas, he had a bunch of kids, and uh, their family had a mission statement. Do any of your families have anything like that? Like a mission statement or a set of values? This is who we are. Like, I hope to do that one day. Um, I should probably start it now, even though Soren like, doesn't care because he's like, ah, I can kind of talk. Um, but we're potty training him right now. Pray for us. My dear wife is at home alone. Uh, yesterday was great. Today, not so good. Pray for me when I go home. Anyways, he would, with those children, um, every day on the way to school for years, he, they would recite the family mission statement on the way to school. Every single day, five days a week, all the school year. And they probably did it around the dinner table and before they went anywhere else. And the reason he did that was because he knew this was forming and shaping their kids. Like, you, this is what it means to bear the name of our family. You live for these things. There's no exceptions. This is just what it means to be a so-and-so. And this is what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4. He's saying the first three chapters, this is who you are. Now it's time for you to start living this identity out, this new humanity that you've been given freely in Christ. And then he goes on to say, what does it look like? What does this calling produce in us? It produces that we act with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with love, one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These were virtues that in the Greco-Roman world were not highly esteemed. And really in our culture, they're not too um, celebrated either. That actually Paul's first hearers would have looked at this and they would have been offensive because they were signs of weakness. You're not going to move up and to the right in the socioeconomic ladder by being a person that's humble and gentle and patient and bearing with love in the ancient world or even today. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is helping the Ephesians and helping you and I understand this morning but God often acts differently than the world acts. That we're called to live differently than what the world calls us to be. Paul uses these virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, because Christ himself actually embodied these very virtues. That when Christ encountered his enemies throughout his ministry, he blessed, he didn't curse. When he was on the cross and everyone around him was mocking him, saying, if you're really the son of God, do something, he said, Father, forgive them. When he could have brought violence upon violence, he brought forgiveness and love. He embodied the brokenness, the sin, the hate, the evil in this world upon himself. He embodied it with humility and gentleness. 
bearing everyone with love and with patience. And Paul brings this up to tell the Ephesians, this is how you are called to live now. There's no exception. There's no other way. This is how you are called to live. And I can look at this list. I can hear this passage and go, yes and amen. My life, my family, the people around me would look and uh, actually experience life more beautifully if I actually lived these things out. Amen? Would you, you agree with that, right? But how many of you do this perfectly every day? None, right? The reality is because we have what the scriptures call this old Adam, the flesh inside of us. That even though we're following Jesus and we are Christians, we still have these tendencies. I know I do. Like instead of being humble to, to operate from a place of ego, instead of operating from a place of love, I operate from a place of fear. Or instead of being patient or gentle, I can be harsh and impatient. And you probably do too. And sadly, too many, especially Lutherans, if you kind of grew up in that tradition, like, ah, I'm just a poor, miserable sinner, so it gives me an excuse to be a jerk. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. It means, actually, you need to lean into the Scriptures, and, and you haven't actually identified your true identity. That's why Paul, he moves forward, where he jumps forward from, these, this is what you're supposed to do. Then he says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. The reason that you and I struggle to live these things out is actually because we forget who we actually belong to. That the the way that we start to live these things out isn't just trying harder. Yes, there is effort on our part, But if you wake up tomorrow morning like, I'm going to try to be these things, like the second you roll out of bed, you realize you failed already. Just like my friend with his children for for years after year after year would remind them of who they are in the family of God. This is why as Christians, we gather for worship. This is why we call upon what God did in the waters of baptism. This is why we confess our sins week in and week out. This is why we pray. This is why if you're in the Bible class, we fast. We do these things to form us into the kind of people who naturally start to do what God has already called us to be. It's not about what you do. It's what God has done in us cooperating with the Spirit as we walk in a a manner that is worthy of the call that you and I have received. As I've been sitting with this text, like, like, I thought this was supposed to be like the application part. This sounds very theology and heady and, and kind of trying to convince me still. As I've been sitting with this text, like, if I'm honest, I can go like, so what? Like, if I'm already these things and I'm good with God, like, why does it matter for me to be humble and gentle and live these things out? Paul's writing to a group of people that before them, there were no Christians. It was a pre-Christian culture. And then the gospel came into Ephesus, and churches were birthed, people were converting, life was starting to change in their city, and persecution was coming for them because they were shaking up the social order. And Paul's writing to these people, not individuals, but to the church, saying, I, I, you know who you are, Ephesians. You are loved. You are reconciled to God through Jesus. But you know what? Your family members aren't yet. Your co-workers aren't. Magistrate isn't. So you 
are called to live differently for their sake. You are called to respond to the persecution that's coming with gentleness and humility and bearing in love with the people that you are living life with, to live differently, to live into this new humanity that Christ has given you for the sake of those who don't yet call on Jesus as Lord. So what does that mean for us living in Austin, Texas in 2023? We have to step back before we can even get there. To think that we're even here as Christians on the other side of the world 2,000 years later is mind-boggling. Have you ever thought about what caused Christianity, which started as this little sect of Judaism called The Way, to now be a worldwide dominant world religion? Many people point to Constantine when he made uh, Christianity legal in the Roman Empire, and then from there, but more and more scholars from what I've read is saying, no, actually what probably happened was Christianity was growing so rapidly that Constantine saw the writing on the wall and went, "Uh uh-oh, can't beat him, you gotta join him. That Christianity was taking root and there was no way he was gonna stop it. I'm not getting the debate, was Constantine actually, was his conversion legit? That's between him and the Lord. But what caused this movement to make our emperor make it become legal? And from the little reading I've done, I'm by no means a historian, but everything seems to point to the fact that the, earlier, the earliest followers of Jesus actually practiced what their Messiah taught them to do. That the early Christians from Ephesus into the first couple centuries actually lived these lives, this new humanity they were called into, that they bore uh, punishment and persecution with love and humility and forgiveness, that they embodied the very person of Jesus. That they were the ones going to the people on the outskirts of society, the ones who had been brushed aside and said, come and join our family, we will take care of you. When the plagues in the in medieval times uh, started to plague the cities, who were the ones that stayed to take care of the sick and the dying? The Christians. Who were the ones that started to radically uh, redefine uh, rights for women and children in society? The Christians. Who were the ones that took care of the children who had been left in the wilderness to die? The Christians. The Christians were the ones who embodied these life-changing virtues in a way that people couldn't help but be drawn to them. So what does that mean for you and I today? A year and a half ago, um, I was, had received the call to come and be one of your pastors. And my wife and I, Tanya, and our son, we came up here, and it was a Saturday evening, we were sitting in the CLC over there. And, um, and as we were sitting there, it became like holy ground for me. Because this wasn't an interview, it was a conversation. And some of you were in that room. And I was amazed <clears throat> at... Um, the stories I was hearing in that room of our elders and our council board and their spouses telling story after story with tears in their eyes of how many of their children and family members and grandchildren grew up in the faith, many here at Bethany, but over the course of the last five to ten years have drifted. Like, at best, they're done with the church. At worst, they've completely rejected Jesus in their life. 
And in that room, there was this sacred moment, this holy moment of, of the people, the leaders of this congregation kind of holding everything with open hands, saying something has to change because what worked before doesn't seem to be working anymore. My last church I served as, um, I kind of oversaw the young adult ministry. They didn't run it. It was run by a bunch of 20-year-olds, and I just kind of was there to, like, bop them on the head when they were getting out of control and, um, and give them free food. And you want to grow young adult ministry? Give them free food. And uh, it was amazing. Over the course of a couple of years, it grew to be close to probably a little over 100 young adults, 25 years and younger. younger. Most of them never came to our church. A few did eventually. Um, but most of them were rediscovering their Christian faith they kind of grew up in, or they were brand new to exploring who Jesus was. And it was amazing. It was the highlight of my year of ministry to this point, just seeing lives radically change for Jesus. And then 2020 happened. An amazing uh, election cycle happened, world pandemic, um, racial tensions exploding all over the country, movement of LBGTQ+. And over the course of those couple years, I had coffee after coffee with 20-somethings who sat down with me as they were, as they said, having their exit interview with me as they were getting ready to walk away from the church. And when I heard time and time again, they weren't leaving the church, the some that had actually joined our congregation or they were part of a young adult group. They weren't leaving because they knew that I and our church held to a conservative, orthodox, historical view of sexuality, that, that sex is meant between a husband, a man, and a wife in that covenant union. They weren't leaving because we held that view. They weren't leaving because the majority of the people in our congregation's politics were far more conservative than theirs were. They weren't leaving because of certain social issues that were popping up and they, didn't, they weren't in line. The reason they were leaving was because they would, the, well, the ones that sat in church with us, they would worship and sit next to people like you, seeing them raise their hands to Jesus and saying, yes, Holy Spirit, come. And then they would go home and the few, I don't know why, like Gen Z, was, they were still on Facebook, but they were, but they would see that same man post a homophobic post on, on Facebook, bashing on anyone that doesn't, isn't straight and white. Or they would see the, the, the other person that they were worshiping up next to and then post something that very clearly said, if you're not Republican, you're not Christian. And then when they would try to engage with that person, have a conversation, they'd basically be told to shut up and, and believe what they believe or else they don't have a place in this church anymore. That's why they left the church, and I don't blame them. Now, this is not me pointing the finger at you. This is me saying, church... We are called to be better. We are called to love in a sacrificial way, in a way that people can't be, help but be drawn to it. I, I love Bethany. I like, I, this new space is going to be beautiful. It's going to be so good. I love this service. The, the lights are down and, and the, the band's rocking. Like, there's definitely a different sense in this room than some of the other services. But that's not going to bring people to Jesus. I didn't grow up in the church. Um, when I was 
13, 14, my stepmom got pregnant. And uh, one Sunday morning, we hearkened the doors of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Agora Hills, California, which the whole property was about this big. Uh, and they had amazing blue carpet. And it's better than, it's, it's, green's better, but it was blue, and it was kind of fuzzy. And uh, mind you, my dad was a rocker in the 80s. I don't know if he still had this on, but like, at one point, he had hair down to here, ratted jeans, bunch of jewelry. He has a Yosemite Sam holding drumsticks tattoo right here. It's awesome. I know at the time he, uh, his politics were not leaning towards conservative, conservative evangelical leanings. But for some reason, they bring us into St. Paul's Lutheran Church. It was like, Whoa! record stops. Like we've dropped the age of that congregation by like 400 years. And they're like, High schoolers, they don't shower yet. What is going on? But over the course of years, over so many bad casseroles, and so much jello with vegetables in it, and so much bad coffee, and so much perfume from grandma that I had to bring my inhaler to church. They loved my family so well. There was no pastor in skinny jeans with tattoos preaching a relevant sermon. The music was awful. The facilities were disgusting. But what transformed my family was that they loved us unconditionally and radically. So much so that I started bringing my friends from high school. Like, and this is like wealthy, white suburbs. Like, you turn 16, you get a BMW. Hey, come check out my church. And they're like, eh. But yet they were loved and accepted. And even some of those people I still talk to, they're still like, hey, how's Pastor Mark doing? 20 years later. Bethany, we're called to love in a radical way. We're called, we're not, it's not our job to defend Jesus. It's not our job to defend anything. It's not our job to hate sin. It's our job to love, to be marked in a worthy, carry the name that we've been called to. And the reality is, I will fail at this all the time. And you will fail at this all the time. That's why... Paul ends this portion of the letter with this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I've sat with many families in this congregation who um, their children are my age and they've walked away from the church. Some because they've come out as, as gay or like, God forbid, they, wrote, they vote Democrat. Or they have different views of different things. And I've had many families sit with me and at first saying, like, Pastor, I've told them I don't accept their lifestyle so they can't be in my house anymore. I'm like, well, how's that going? Well, we haven't talked in a year. What if you just loved them? What if you repented? What if you confessed you didn't love them well in that moment? And some of them have done that. And relationships are starting to mend. So as a church, what if we actually 
instead of trying to be right, trying to be powerful like the world tells us to be, we just be humble and patient and kind and lead with repentance and forgiveness. Because the Lord knows the church does beautiful things and the secular world's only going to report on the awful things that some Christians do. And Gen Z in the room, Gen Z, high schoolers, middle schoolers, young adults, maybe you also need to have an open heart that these people here that kind of don't look like you or have different views aren't just bigoted, awful people, but they actually love you. And they're trying to share some experiences with you too. That this goes for you too, to learn to bear with one another. And as we do that, I trust that people will see that in your lives and your communities and start inviting themselves into it. And Bethany might grow. It might not. It's okay. It's God's church. But when we all stand before the Lord on Resurrection Day, say, yeah, we try to embody these things. And when I failed, I confessed and I repented and I received for forgiveness day in and day out. So Lord, as we um, prepare to come to the table, we, we start by confessing <clears throat> that Jesus, you've um, taught us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Lord, you've called us very clearly to love the least of these. Lord, nowhere in the scriptures you've told us it's our job to defend your church, to make sure that your church has power, to make sure that your church has the, um, the right foothold in secular society. Lord, you've told us our job is to, to love one another, to be unified, and that as people see our unity, they will see you, Jesus. So Lord, we just take a moment as we just sit in silence for a moment to confess over this week where we have not loved you and where we have not loved our neighbors. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are kind in leading us to repentance. That your desire is not to leave us as we are. That you accept us just as we are, but your desire is to grow us. And it's only because of what Christ has done for us. So come, Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, hear this good news. That Christ has taken all of your rage and anger and fear and ego upon himself. He bore that. He, he took it upon himself and buried it. And in the waters of baptism, that old self, the old Adam, has been held underwater and is dead. And you've been raised to new life in Christ. You don't have to strive to be a people who is humble because you are grafted into the one who is humble, who is kind, who is tenderhearted. So as God's people, as God's forgiven, holy, blessed, blameless people, we confess our faith in the triune God with the words of the creed.